0: Amen. Thanks for joining us this morning for worship as we continue in a season of numbers talking about temptation and how we all give in to temptation in different ways as we saw last week even up on the screen we all have different temptations that, uh, that entice us and sometimes it might be comfort and money becomes a way to get to comfort sometimes it's power but we all are tempted by different things to cross certain lines. So in our series in numbers, you remember we we started in Sinai learning how to put God's presence at the center of our life. We then learned that God tests us to see whether or not we're willing to put him as the priority of why we make decisions. And now in this last section of numbers, we're looking at temptation. And specifically Moab, which is the wilderness of temptation. And we talked about when we face temptation, we're really trying to ask a question, which is do I see what God sees in this temptation? Do I hear what God says about this temptation or do I only hear what I want to hear and see what I want to see? And again, we've looked at Moab, which is our third wilderness that we're in, and really want to ask that question. And it becomes very clear today in the story of Balaam that he only sees what he wants to see and he only hears what he wants to hear when it comes to temptation. And that gets us in trouble and you see for for some of us we're all tempted by different things for some of us it's power right we've seen with Sion and Og, power was one of the things that that drew Sion in and for Og it was a temptation of fear when we face giants in our life or challenges in our life we're tempted to give in to fear because we're not sure that we can get in control we're not sure if we can make it we're not sure if we can face the kind of giants that are before us some of us struggle with anger We saw Moses a few weeks ago as he was so angry, you know, he struck that rock instead of speaking to the rock. And God told him that an anger problem is really a a trust problem. And so today we're going to look at the role money plays in Balaam's life. And here's the great thing about money. Money is a great good. The Bible celebrates money. It celebrates people who have money. Money is a source of ways to bless yourself, bless your family. It's a source to create environments for for memories, uh, the environments to provide for other people and provide for your family and create a great future. Money is a great source of good. But money also is not a great God. When money goes from being a thing you enjoy and a thing that's part of your life to the thing that rules your life, we get in trouble. That's what Balaam's going to find today. As he is in the wilderness of Moab, we're going to find that, again, he discovers that money is a great good, but it's not a great God. And he's going to be riding his donkey on a path something like this. It's going to be a a big wall to one side, and that donkey is going to ram him in and smash his leg on a wall, something like that. All because he looks obedient on the outside. By the inside, he's turned money from a good into a God. So as we look at that today, we're going to look at uh, some ways to train ourselves. And if, uh, if you've never read 2 Peter, sometimes it can be interesting to see how the Bible commentates on the Bible. It's a great commentary for the Bible. And it says that in 2 Peter, as it describes the passage we're going to look at today in Numbers. It says, it's a warning to people in 2 Peter, you guys have your hearts trained. Interesting word that we can train our hearts. He says, you have trained your hearts to covet, to participate in coveting practices, to always want more than you have. And and you're accursed children, Peter says. And then he's describing this kind of pattern. He says, you've forsaken the right way. Instead, you've gone down the wrong way. You've gone astray. And he, He calls that way they go astray, the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. What is this wrong way that, that the people in 1 Peter were, were going down or training themselves in? Well, it's when you fall in love with the wages of unrighteousness. When all of a sudden, suddenly something else, and what you get out of something else, is worth more than your worship of God. That's what he's saying. For he was rebuked for his iniquity by God, and a dumb donkey spoke with a man's voice trying to restrain the madness of the prophet. This word madness is really interesting. It's almost like we get the idea of being paranoid. See the Greek word there? Paraphophania, which is insanity or fool It's really the idea of dual-mindedness. You're trying to worship God and you're trying to worship money, and that dual-mindedness is driving you insane because you're trying to... Worship two things at once, and one's going to have to subordinate to the other. It's the idea of money madness he's talking about. When you train yourself in covetousness, instead of training yourself to worship and honor and value God as first in your life. That's what happens on this main idea here. It's that when money moves to being a god instead of a source of good, it leads to money madness. So if you can train yourself in covetous practices... How do we train ourselves to see money as a good and not a God? We'll get three little applications from Balaam's life on how we can train ourselves. And how to train ourselves specifically in making God the thing we worship fully. Let's jump into the passage here. The children of Israel moved and they camped in the plains of Moab. On the side of the Jordan across from Jericho. Now Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that all Israel had done to the Amorites, Zippor, I mean to to Sion and Og. So Moab was exceedingly afraid of all the people, for they were many. And Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders, now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. If you're with us about a month ago when we did a one man drama on that, you remember Balak, lick you, the ox will lick us up. I mean, they are terrified. So, Balak, the king of the Moabites at the time, is trying to figure out how to stop this from happening, the Israelites conquering them. So, he sends messengers, if you remember, to Balaam, the son of Beor, an ancient witch doctor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the sons of his people. To call him, he says, Here's a message I want you to send to this witch doctor, "'Look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth, and they're settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once. Curse these people for me, for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whom you curse is cursed, and whom you bless is blessed.'" So basically this is a mercenary cursor that he's trying to come over to his land to curse Israel so Israel won't defeat him. That's the idea here. So the elders of Moab, if you remember, they send princes, some famous people, and some wealthy people to make their way over to Moab to go and talk with Balaam. And they bring with a diviner's fee in their hand because they know what, what Balaam is tempted by more than anything Is his love of money. So this diviner's fee becomes a major part of his temptation. So they came to Balaam and they spoke to him in the words of Balak and said, he says, hey, uh, lodge here tonight and I will bring word back to you as the Lord speaks to me. Now, keep in mind, this is not a prophet like Ezekiel or Jeremiah. This is not somebody who is a, a follower of the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. This is an ancient witch doctor who talks to all kinds of people in the spiritual realm. It's like, who you want to talk to? The Lord, right? the Lord of, of their God, of the Israelites. I'll ask him if it's OK for me to curse his people. So that's the kind of the prayer time that he's working in. But again, I think the first thing we want to notice here is a bad example that Balaam does is that he has trained himself, as Peter tells us, that this diviner's fee is going to come in conflict with what the Lord says to him. And so when these two are in conflict, what God wants and what my heart wants, who's going to win the day? And that's really how temptation works. At some point, what God wants, says, desires. Can I trust his way is best? Or am I going to train myself to listen to the voice of covetousness, people's approval... Might I trust God's way of handling anger or my way of handling anger? What God says is valuable or this diviner's fee, even if it means compromising what God tells me? And I think that's the first question we should ask ourselves: Is have I trained myself to follow God regardless of the price? And the answer is well, I want that to be true. <laughs> I want that to be true. When I give in the temptation, I said, well, it turns out I do have a price. Certain amount of approval, certain amount of pleasure, certain amount of comfort, certain amount of money, and I stop trusting God's way of doing it, and I start saying, well, it's, it's worth it. Reminds me, when I was in college, I was part of a radio drama team. And so we did uh, original radio drama for a, a show called The Ron Hutchcraft Show. It was a youth broadcast show on Moody Bible Institute's network. And one of our sketches was about a dog. And the sketch, again, it was all on the radio, but you'd hear the master saying, Come on, Dusty, come on, come on, Dusty, let's go to the park today. And then you heard the, the voice of the dog, and he's like, ha, <laughs> ha. Okay, okay, follow away follow away follow away follow away Alright, come on, buddy, come on, get it! Follow away follow away give us gotta follow away, follow away Oh, squirrel, 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 oh squirrel, squirrel squirrel. Come on, buddy, don't follow squirrel, come over here! Oh yeah, oh, so sorry, sorry, Squirrel, 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 follow away follow away follow Ray, follow Ray. Follow Ray. Oh, I smell, I smell, 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 smell something. Oh, some, some, somebody so at the park. It's got, it's got, it's got some peanuts, 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 Ray, Ray, don't eat their peanuts. Come here, right, come over here! And he just kept having to say to himself, not the squirrel, not the people at the parking bench. follow Ray, follow Ray, follow Ray. And I always love that sketch we did because it reminds me of a lot of what happens with temptation. We get distracted, shiny objects, people's approval, different idols. We have to say, follow God, follow God, just got to follow God, follow God, follow God. How do we train ourselves to keep valuing and worshiping God as the most important thing, not whatever our unique temptation is? So that's the first thing we see. And these are going to come in tension here. And that brings us to the second way we need to train ourselves, which is just really to bombard ourselves with questions, because there's going to be a lot of questions that Balaam needs to ask himself that I think we need to ask ourselves. Let's jump into that here. So the second way to train ourselves. So he's going to talk to God, and God's going to tell him, can he curse or can he bless? So the princes of Moab stay with Balaam that night, and God says to Balaam, now already this is an incredible act of mercy, we can, this is a witch doctor, he's doing what the Bible calls abomination, the Bible calls divination and astrology and seeking, um, you know, spiritual realms. You, you may think you're talking to God, you're not really talking to God. So he's practicing something the Bible forbids, but God is still in his mercy going to speak to him. Then God said to Balaam, he came to him and said, who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, it's not like he didn't know, right? He's, he's basically saying, what are you doing associating with people who are trying to curse my people? So Balaam says to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, has sent, was sent to me saying, look, a people have come out of Egypt. That's God's people. They cover the face of the earth, about two million at this point, some people estimate. They want me to curse them for him. And perhaps he'll be able to empower them and drive them out. So he pretty much just quotes Balak. So God's message to Balaam. You shall not go with them. Look at all the pieces. You shall not go with them, part one. You shall not curse them, part two, for they are blessed, part three. And Balaam, who really wants that diviner's fee, gets up the next day, pouts his way over to the people, and said to the princes, Oh, the princes, look at their wealth, look at their power, look at their fame. Go back to your land. For the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. So he's already weighing, right? You're going to see this come out. He's weighing. What God says is this. What I want is that diviners feed that. <clears throat> but notice how he misquotes God. God actually gave him three things. One, don't go with. Number two, I don't want you cursing these people. And three, these people are blessed. Instead, all he got out of this is, God is keeping me from my diviner's fee. He's refusing to let me go. That's often how temptation works. It begins to make you think that God's withholding the good stuff from you. So you start saying, temptation's offering me the good stuff, and God is withholding the good stuff. Right? That's how the human heart works. And when that happens, we begin to haggle. We begin to say, well, if God's holding out, then, man, maybe God doesn't have my best in mind. Maybe this isn't the best life. And, and, and man, temptation says, I'm offering you the best life. All God does is give me a bunch of rules. I can't do this, and I can't do that, and I refuse to go, and I can't get a diviner's fee, and I can't make a living. That's kind of the way he's starting to process. A couple questions in the second training that I think he should have asked himself that we can ask ourselves. Number one, am I haggling... Over more of whatever. When you're weighing what God says versus your whatever, what is it that if you had more of whatever, you might lean away from God's opinion or advice or commandments on a certain subject? Now, your whatever is different from my whatever. Yours might be approval of other people, it might be comfort, it might be pleasure. Yours might be reputation. But we all have a whatever. And that's the temptation that will uniquely tempt us. If I just had a little more, there's a certain price of that that would get me to stop seeing or hearing what God says. Right? I think Balak must know Balaam because he knows that he just needs to add a little bit more money, a little bit more fame, and a little bit more reputation. That was Balaam's more and his whatever. So notice what he does. "'The princes of Moaz arose, and they went back to Balak. "'And they said, Balaam refuses to come with us. "'Then Balak again sent princes.'" That's what temptation does. It comes back again and again. "'Only this time it adds more.'" More what? More princes, people who represent wealth and fame and all the things Balaam wants more of. And notice the princes, there's more of them. They're more numerous. And there's more honorable, more famous, all right, we didn't send famous enough people. Call up Hollywood. Let's get the most, the famous princes we have. Go send the famous princes there with all the bling. So Balak knows I can eventually haggle with this guy if I can just offer more fame, more money, and know that he can hang out with people who have the reputation that he wants. So they came to Balaam and they said to him, thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, please let nothing hinder you from coming to me. Ooh, Nothing. For I will certainly honor you greatly. Oh, there's another temptation, honor. And I will do, and look at this word, blank check time, whatever you say to me. We went from more to more to I can have whatever I want. That's always what temptation offers. You're haggling over getting whatever you want, whatever your more is, even if it means violating your conscience, not worshiping God in his way in this particular circumstance. Are you haggling over the price of whatever? I bet you are, I know I am. It's always what temptation sounds like. Reminds me a little bit of Groucho Marx. If you remember Groucho Marx? Take my wife, please, And Groucho Marx. Groucho Marx is a story, it's been credited to many, many people, Mark Twain, but Groucho Marx brought it famous again. He saw a woman at a party one time, he says, hey, excuse me lady, uh, do you think you'd sleep with me for $10 million? <laughs> She's like, $10 million? Oh, I might do anything for $10 million. He's like, oh great, well would you sleep with me for $15? What kind of a woman do you think I am? <laughs> We've already established what kind of woman you are, now we're just haggling over price. See, That's how temptation works. Once it establishes you will give in to it, it's just trying to haggle over price. Reminds me of a story told about two, a true story of two thieves, very clever thieves. They broke into a hardware store at night by coming in the upper window. They stayed in the hardware store for several hours. Then they left out the window and they didn't take anything. These are lousy thieves. The next morning the hardware store opened. It will stay in operation for about four hours before it discovers that somebody switched all the price tags. <laughs> Skill saws are now $2.45. A pair of reading glasses is now $125. Things that were valuable are now on sale. Things that were very, very poor quality are now selling for outrageous prices. And that's what temptation does. Temptation says God, his way, his worship, his advice, what he values... We're going to downgrade the price tag on what's really valuable. And we're going to upgrade temptation. This is what really matters. This is what will really give you life. This is what's really God's withholding you from. He switches the price tags. How about you? Is there some way in your life you're haggling over price? A couple more questions here in this training. Is my heart seeking to make deals and work? Look for workarounds. Now, I love workarounds, so this really resonates with me because when it comes to temptation, can I still obey God and get the money and get what I want? And is there, is there some way to have my cake and eat it too? I could worship both approval and God, money and God. So Balaam answers them, and he says to the servants of Balak, though Balak would give me a house full of silver and gold... He's negotiating, right? You said he'll give me whatever. Well, even if he gave me a house full of silver and gold, well, I couldn't go beyond what the word of the Lord says to me (laughs) to do less or more. Now, therefore, please stay with me tonight, and I'll ask. It's it's probably worth a second opinion if we're getting offered whatever, right? God's already spoken on this. But he's looking for a workaround. There's got to be some way to get around this. I'll make a deal. I'm only going to do what God says. (laughs) But I really want that house full of silver and gold. And you can see temptation and the deal-making going on and the seeking of workarounds. A house full of silver and gold. Reminds me of a buddy. A buddy when I was in my 20s, he had just moved into his first apartment. And he asked us to come and help him move. You know, in your 20s, everybody helps each other move from apartment to apartment. And his house was not filled with silver and gold. But it was filled with every single National Geographic magazine ever produced in boxes, and I'm coming to move. And what? I gave him this big old box, like dozens of them. I'm like, what's in these things? I pick it up. Holy cow! What is in these things? Are you gonna put this in your apartment? He's like, Yeah, that's that's my National Geographic. Like, when's the, <coughs> when's the last time you read them? Oh, I'm gonna, I, 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 I get around them, you know a lot. Recently? Well, I'm going to. So I literally carried stupid Gosh! into his apartment, set it down, don't get another one. I moved all of them in there. I then pulled out a marker, and I wrote on the top of all of his cardboard boxes, things I should have thrown away, ways to torture my friends. (laughs) About a year later, he decides to move again. Sure enough, I show up. Now I'm picking up these boxes and say things I should have thrown away. I'm moving it to a second apartment. No, he's moved to a house this time. And, and so we moved to his house. And I'm like, where should we put these? Oh, I don't know. He's got a fully unfinished basement. And there's nothing down there except these boxes, things I should have thrown away. National Geographic. And I'm like, listen, here's the deal, buddy. I am ne- I'm a friend, but I'm not that good of a friend. I will never move these National Geographic boxes again. He's like, okay, well, I appreciate you doing it twice. So literally, the concrete slab, unfinished basement with just boxes of National Geographics. About two months later, they have a, a housewarming party for all the small group comes over and we're hanging out there. And I said, Hey, uh, how's the, the organization going? He's like, You're not gonna believe what happened. I'm like, what happened? And he's just so sad and distraught. He brings me downstairs and he says, I got termites. I said, termites, that sounds terrible. He goes, well, we got people in, but they, they, they went into the, to my basement. I'm starting to, oh. <laughs> and literally, these termites, as sent by God himself, made a line. I don't even know if they touched the house. They literally just crawled over to the National Geographic and drilled a hole straight through the middle and ate through all of the National Geographic. And, and he's sad and you're supposed to rejoice with those rejoice and weep with those re- weep. But I felt like it was time for him to rejoice with me when I was rejoicing. I'm like, praise God that we are finally not going to have to deal with these National Geographics, right? And I think sometimes, as Jesus says, we put the value on... Silver and gold, our National Geographic, people's approval. But guess what? Moth is going to eat that and rust is going to eat that. And God is saying, I want you to put your value on eternal things, like your soul and me and worship what matters. So yours might not be a house full of National Geographic. It might be that silver and gold, but we all have something we're tempted by. And therefore, we end up confusing mercy from God for permission from God. So God came to Balaam at night and said... Hey, if the man come to call you, rise and go with them. So now he's changed. You can go with them, but this is mercy. I told you I didn't want you to go with him, but okay, I will now permit you, plan B, I'll let you go with them, but the most important thing is you're not going to curse them, and you're not to, you're only to bless my people. Only the word which I speak to you, I give you words, you speak the words, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, oh, I got permission. No, no, God's giving you Mercy. And you've confused mercy for permission, for your workaround. So Balaam rose in the morning, he saddled up his donkey, and he went with the princes of Moab. And now he's headed with them down to Moab. Which gets us to kind of the main point of the second training, is often externally we look like we're obeying, we're good Christians, we're following Jesus, we read the Bible. But internally we're no longer worshiping God. We're worshiping something besides God. We've trained our heart in covetousness. We've trained our heart that money is more valuable than God. That pleasure is more more valuable than God. So we look on the outside like we're obeying. And Balaam looks like he's obeying. But on the inside, he's compromising, as Peter told us. But God's anger was aroused because he went. Well, he's just doing what God said. But God could tell he wasn't going to obey. He was going to go curse them. And the angel of the Lord stood in his way. And whenever you see the angel of the Lord capitalized like that, that means it's not just a angel, it's the angel, which means it's Jesus in the Old Testament. It's called a theophany. So whenever it's capitalized, it means it's the Lord and it's the Lord's messenger. So this is Jesus in the Old Testament. So Jesus is standing in the way. As an adversary against him, I'm protecting my people that I'm gonna bless, That you want to curse, that I'm protecting them. They're only blessed. And he was riding on his donkey, ba-dum, 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 ba-dum. His two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel. So the donkey saw what God was doing. Balaam is blind to what God is doing. And that's the irony going on here. The all-seeing seer of God cannot see what's right in front of him. And the angel draws out his sword to say, "You're not going to curse the things that I've blessed." The donkey, seeing the angel, turns aside out of the way and went into a field. So Balaam struck his donkey, you stupid donkey, why do you not go to this field? To turn back onto the road. Get over there. That's the way we're going. Get back on the way. So the angel of the Lord stood now, they're kind of a crossroads, and the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards. There's a wall on one side and a wall on that side. So now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord again that Balaam can't see. So she tries to avoid the angel by pushing herself against the wall and she crushes Balaam's foot. Oh, you stupid donkey, what are you doing? Don't you know I can see better than you? I know better than you. Stay on the way. And the whole story here is Jewish humor that Balaam thinks he knows better than the donkey, but the donkey knows better than him. He thinks he's the all seeing one trying to get the stubborn donkey to go the right way, but he's the stubborn donkey that God can't get to go the right, right way. So she pushed herself against the wall, crushing Balaam's foot against the wall. And so he struck her again, stupid donkey! So the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the left or right. There's no escape this time. Now, notice already God of the Old Testament, mercy, mercy in letting you go, mercy in giving you a donkey that could see, mercy in giving you two chances. You know you shouldn't be doing this. You know you shouldn't be doing this. And now there's no way out. Narrow path, here it comes. You're going to face the consequences of giving into temptation. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, again, the mercy of God, donkey can see, she lay down under Balaam. Balaam's anger was aroused. Oh, I can't believe I got thrown off the donkey. He struck the donkey with his staff for a third time. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she, the donkey,'s talking. Now, again, the whole joke here is that Balaam's the stubborn ass who won't listen to God. But the real stubborn ass is doing what God has said. That Balaam can't speak the words God put in his mouth, but the donkey does speak the words that God puts in his mouth. That's all the Jewish humor going on here. And the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey and says, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? Says the donkey. And Balaam says to the donkey, well, because you've abused me. I wish uh, there was a sword in my hand and I'd kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, have I not been your donkey since the day you've ever ridden me? Ever since I I became yours this day? Was I ever disposed to do something like this to you? No. He's having this conversation with his donkey. And this is a hilarious conversation. And the Lord then, who opened the mouth of the donkey, opened the eyes of Balaam. (laughs) He can see the angel in front of him. Holy cow, there's an angel of the Lord standing in the way. And he's got a sword drawn. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face, recognizing he was in the realm of the one true God. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey three times? I came out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. Your abominations are perverse before me. The fact you're trying to curse my people is an abomination perverse before me. The donkey saw what you couldn't see. He turned aside from me these three times. The donkey that you're about to hit or are hitting saved your life. If she had not turned aside from me, I would have killed you by now, but I would have let her live. <laughs> now, here's where the donkey represents Jesus. If we got just due for all the wages of sin and ways we give into temptation, the wages of sin is death, and we'd be suffering that. The donkey helped him escape the consequences by seeing what he couldn't see. In the same way, Jesus came and he saved us from the consequences of everything we'd done by dying on the cross and offering us forgiveness. The angel is also a representative of Jesus, because it is Jesus in the Old Testament, saying, listen, if you don't trust me, if you don't take my way of forgiveness, if you don't take my way of mercy, if you think your way's better, you're going to be self-righteous, you're going to worship something else, I'll be merciful, one trip in the field, one trip on the wall, just a little bit of consequences for temptation, but eventually you will face the full realm of me giving you over to what you say you trust in. So all those questions are just ways we train ourselves into what matters and what we think matters. But let me give you the third ways, in conclusion, the third way to train ourselves, kind of ends the section of the story, Balaam that looks like he's repentant here. Balaam says to the angel of the Lord, I've sinned. I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. This sounds like repentance. Then the angel of the Lord said to him, no, I don't want you to go back. Right now I want you to go with the people, but only speak what I speak to you. And here's again the Jewish humor. Do what the donkey could do. I tell you to speak, you do it like the donkey. Go be like the donkey. But only speak the word I tell you to speak. I want you to value what I say to speak, not what you think or what you want or what you're worshiping. I think that's the third way we got to train, which is what is your one and only? Only the word I speak to you. You can only serve one master. What is your one and only? Have you determined what is your one and only? If God's word and your greatest temptation come face to face, which one's going to be your one and only that takes priority? The diviner's fee or the word of the Lord? So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. Seemingly, he's determined God is his one and only. But as we'll find out in the next couple chapters, he's still trying to make God serve what he really wants, which is money. I think it's one of the reasons why God talks about money a lot. I think it's also one of the reasons God puts into practice in the Bible one of the habits that helps you deal with money ruling your life is the idea of, of financial giving. Because it's not like God needs your money, right? He owns a, the cattle on a thousand hills. But what God says is, when you give, it keeps you from overspending, where spending becomes your god. It also keeps you from overgiving, where you think giving is going to—I mean, over um, saving, where saving is your security. Giving is a way, especially percentage giving, is a way of saying, God, you're the one I'm trusting in. I am going to save and be responsible, but I don't put my trust in my savings. I am going to spend and enjoy money. It's a great way. To, I love buying stuff, and it's fun to buy stuff, and God says, that's awesome. But by giving, I'm aligning my heart so that spending subordinates itself to God. saving subordinates itself to God, and even giving. Some people give in order to earn their way into heaven or give to get credit or give to get, to get fame for being a giver. Money can really distort our hearts, and so one of the reasons God aligns us is says that when you financially give a percentage of your income away, it's really not because God needs it, it's really because you need it. It's saying, God, I want my heart to be worshiping you, so I don't overspend, I don't overgive, I don't oversave. You are the one I worship. I don't know if you' ever challenged yourself in the area of money and saying, "I want to make sure that money is a good thing but it's not a God thing. I haven't turned into a God. And I hope that the ways you give, I hope you're giving in a progressive way and a percentage giving. And percentage giving can be so powerful because every time you give a percentage of your income, you're so thankful for the X of what God's given you. You say, man, I'm just so thankful I can give a portion of this to remind myself that you're the one I worship. I hope one of the places you give is at Horizon. I hope you give to a lot more than that. But you're saying, "Man, I'm so thankful for a place that I learn about the Bible, and I get convicted at times, and I get encouraged at times, and I laugh at times, and I could build a whole case as to why the church needs it, and why you know inflation is going to be bad, and we're working on budgets and all that, and that would be true." But the real motivation for giving is to align my heart to make sure I'm worshiping God and not worshiping something besides God. And that's why Second Peter says. We've got to make sure that we've trained our heart lest we result in money madness. See, this brings full circle here what he said back in 2 Peter. Money madness is overcome when you worship one master. Now, money is a good thing, but it's not a God thing. Let's look back at 2 Peter. Have you allowed your heart to be trained in dual worship? I think I can worship God and money. You'll just end up practicing covetousness. You'll end up following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, because you've fallen in love with the wages of unrighteousness, which is not saying that money is bad. It's just saying when you make money of God, it eventually leads you down the wrong path. Even a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice, what was God doing with that donkey? He was trying to restrain the madness, the dual-mindedness of the prophet. The prophet pretended he was worshiping God while putting money on the back burner. But God knew, even though it looked externally like obedience, he really was dual-minded. I want to worship money and see if I can use God to get what I really want. Jesus in Matthew 6 says it so clearly. He says, guys, you can't serve two masters. (laughs) Either you're going to hate one and love the other, or you're going to be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So my encouragement to you today here, I'm going to invite the band to come out and we're going to do a song that we haven't done in many, many years. It's a song that has impacted me over the years. It's a song that has moved me over the years. It's a song about asking yourself, what do I really worship? And how do I realign myself to worship who God is? Let's pray together. Father, in these next few moments, remind us that you are the faithful one that you are the merciful one, that you are the powerful one, and teach us to train our hearts in the worship of you.